Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Today we're starting a new series, uh, and the series is called God of the Comeback. And typically in a message like this, um, the pastor, uh, he, he, kind of, he kind of sucker punches you at the end, like you, you want to leave them guessing a little bit and then have them surprised at the end with, oh, this is how it goes. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly in the face of Bible college teaching, and let me just tell you how it today ends. Because we're talking about comebacks, and the greatest comeback in the history of the human race, in, the, in all of history, happened 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday morning when Jesus walked out of a grave, when he came back from the dead, and he declared victory over hell, death, and the grave. That was the greatest comeback of all time, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and so I'm giving away the end, but I'm just telling you now, that is what this is all about. That is what we're doing here today. We're celebrating Jesus's victory over over death and the grave and so uh, that was the greatest comeback of all time and I'm a sports fan and I like uh, sports and I like a good comeback and there's several things in a comeback you have to see uh, but but if we're going to be honest women like comebacks too and you're like uh, Mel I don't like football well that's okay you don't have to like football but you like comebacks and the way I know that is because the Hallmark Channel is still in existence um <laughs> Honestly, if you watch any Hallmark movie, do you know how they go? Let me just tell you. If you've never seen one, I'll save you a lot of time. Um, there's a lady. She is a, she's a, an attorney at a big firm in New York City, and she's got a client she's got to go see in the country. And so she's driving through the country. She reaches down for her cell phone, and when she looks up, she inadvertently hits the mayor of the small town's pig, and the pig is injured. And because, uh, because it's a small town, they don't fine her, and they don't put her in jail. They, they sentence her to community service. And so she's stuck in this small town uh, so that she has to do this community service. And she's miserable until she meets the handsome, dashing handyman in town. (laughs) You you already know, right? You know this is true. And, you know, their eyes meet and they're an unlikely couple because, you know, she's a little bit, she's a little bit rock and roll. He's a little bit country, you know, that whole thing. And they fall in love, and they realize they fell in love. And then she leaves, and they're, they're separated, and you think, oh, no, they're not going to get together. But it's a Hallmark movie, right? <laughs> and so however the circumstances work, and they come back together, and there's that scene at the end where she says, I'm giving up my life in New York, and I'm moving here to Hicksville to live with you and marry you. And Oh, it's beautiful, right? What, what you're rooting for is the comeback, right? Because it looked like everything was hopeless. looked like it wasn't going to work out, but there's a comeback. We all like comebacks. We all do, whether we realize it or not. And there's some elements to a great comeback. For a comeback to be great, there's some things we have to see. So let me just walk through those with you. In sports especially, you can see this, but there's got to be a deficit. If, if, if a team is behind by one point or one run or, or you know, just a small margin, it doesn't make for a great comeback. It doesn't mean it's not important or a good game, but for it to be a great comeback, there has to be a deficit. Um, when Frank Reich will be with us next week, he led the biggest comeback in NFL history at that time. He led his team back from 35 points down at the beginning of the third quarter. So he was down by five touchdowns to begin the third quarter, and he led his team back to victory. That was a big deficit, but today that comeback is known in the NFL as the comeback. So it's not called the Bills comeback or 
Frank Reich comeback. It is the comeback. It is the comeback above all comebacks because of the deficit, because of what was going on. So the bigger the deficit is, the more dramatic the comeback is. So, so just understand that. In your life, the bigger the gap is uh, between what you need and what you have, the bigger, the, the more you're set up for a great comeback. Um, another thing that's really important is the odds. Uh, how improbable is the comeback? The longer the odds, the better the comeback. If, if, if it doesn't look like it's possible, then it makes it even more dramatic. On ESPN, they have a thing now where you can go online and look during a game. So you can find the game on ESPN.com and you can look at the probability of a comeback. So throughout the game, even play to play, the probability will change of the score and who's going to win. It's kind of interesting to see. But the, the lower the probability or the longer the odds, the more interesting the comeback is. Um, the stakes matter. Because if, if I'm in the backyard playing, um, playing wiffle ball with my girls and I make a big comeback, it doesn't matter. It's backyard wiffle ball, right? But, it, but if it is the bottom of the ninth, right? It's the seventh game of the World Series and Mel Massingale comes to the plate. Three balls, two strikes, what every little boy dreams of. That is big stakes because there's something important on the line. It's the World Series, right? So the stakes matter. What, what is the outcome of the situation? If it's a big deal, then it makes a difference to the comeback. And then every great comeback is memorable. You remember great comebacks. That's why they have names like the comeback. Um, because they stick in your mind. You remember great stories of people whose marriage looked like it was falling apart and then God reconciled it, brought it back together. You remember those stories because... It's a great comeback, and they're memorable. And like I said, we're going to talk about the greatest comeback of all time today, and it's the, it's the comeback that Jesus had when he came back from the grave. Um, and it really, we're going to start back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to start in verse 2. And if you're new to church, or you're new to God, or maybe you're here and you're not even religious, maybe you're here and you're just here because you're with family, or you're here to appease someone, um, I, I want to I tell you something about this passage. This passage in Isaiah, it's written as if it's history, but it's actually foreshadowing. It's actually, um, it's prophetic. So this passage we're reading today was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. It was prophetic. And so God spoke to Isaiah, and he wrote it, and he proclaimed it. And this is what it says in Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So this is talking about the future Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. And when you look at this, it's kind of a strange verse to be reading on Easter because what it's basically saying is there wasn't anything special about Jesus and he was not very good to look at. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, when you think about it, this is kind of God's MO for Jesus um, because God didn't send Jesus to planet Earth as the best looking, as the most uh, charismatic, as the, the, the wealthiest, as the most successful what he did is he sent him as a normal man, as a plain guy. In fact, what Scripture basically says there is, if you saw him, you probably wouldn't give him a second look because he was just plain looking. He wasn't, he wasn't good looking enough that you'd go, wow, look at that guy. He, he wasn't so good looking that you'd say, hey, I know that guy from the egg hunt, right? 
He was just a normal looking guy. And this is what God did though. When God sent Jesus, who's the son of God, the incarnate presence of God to planet earth, what he did was he didn't send him to Rome or Jerusalem or any center of activity or culture. What he did is he sent him to be born in Bethlehem, which was a backwater town in the middle of nowhere. If you want a good illustration for how remote Bethlehem is, um, they didn't have high-speed internet there. They only have dial-up. Does that make sense to anybody in the room? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you resemble that comment, right? That's where Jesus was born. And he wasn't born in um, a five-star hotel. He wasn't born in the best hospital. He was born in a hole that was dug out of the side of a mountain. It was basically a cave that animals slept and defecated in. And this is where our Savior was born. It wasn't an accident. I think God did that on purpose. See, he uses the humble things to, to bring maximum glory. And so when we see Jesus, what it says is he was just a normal guy. He, he, he was not so remarkable that you'd t- give him a second look even. Verse 3 says this, He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. So, Just think about that. Men would hide their faces from him. And you think, well, what circumstance? Well, it's the circumstance in which he was crucified on the cross. When he was murdered on the cross, it was such a grotesque scene, people literally hid their faces. It says, and we esteemed him not. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. In his wounds we are, uh, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See what this passage is illustrating 700 years before the birth of Christ, is that there would be a Messiah that would come and bear the weight and carry the burdens. That, that, that the punishment that we rightly deserved, he would take upon himself, even though he did not deserve it. That the, the pain that we deserved, he would take on himself. That the humiliation that we deserved because of our own sin, he would take on himself. In fact, it says, listen to this, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. So what this is basically saying is the chastisement that was heaped on him, the mocking, the insults that were heaped on our Savior, every time it was piled on him. Mocking from common people, from soldiers, from religious authority, from secular authority. Everywhere he turned, people were mocking him. And every time he heard one of those words, every time a mocking word would land on his ear. It built peace in us. See, it had the opposite effect of what it should for us because Jesus took that on. If you look at what Jesus did and what he accomplished on the cross, it's remarkable. Um, and, And I'm sure you've seen movies and illustrations and things like that. You've heard people talk in detail, and I won't go into a ton of detail today, but I just want to walk through this with you this morning. Um, typically in a Roman crucifixion, well, first of all, crucifixion was so barbaric that Romans wouldn't even do it to their own citizens. So even the worst Roman criminal would be beheaded. They would never be crucified. 
This was reserved for foreigners, for things like that. And so when someone was crucified, uh, the Romans considered it barbaric. And they, they felt like decent people wouldn't even watch, wouldn't even take part in it. Uh, but they still perform these, these barbaric acts. Um, and typically what they would do is they would begin with a scourging. And so they would beat the person's back, just like you would tenderize a piece of meat before you grill it uh, or, or marinate it. They would beat this person's back, and they would tenderize the person. So imagine our Savior being tenderized, being prepared for a flogging, for a, for a scourging. And then they would take a whip called the cat of nine tails. And if you've been around church, maybe you've heard this term before. But it was a whip that the end had several pieces of leather. In fact, nine, typically. That's where it gets its name. And the leather had stone, sharp stone or glass that was woven into the end of it. So when the person was whipped, the sharp pieces would dig into the flesh and then the person who was performing the flogging would rip the skin away and it would cause deep gashes in the person's back. It, would, it was a terrible pain. In fact, many people who were going to be crucified never even made it to the cross because they died during the scourging, during the, the, the beating. So after this was finished... Um, this went on for quite some time. Finally, it was finished, and they decided it wasn't enough to physically harm him, so they plucked his beard out of his face, which uh, even today in, uh, in the Middle East, but, but especially then, this was, this was a sign of disgrace. They would pluck his beard out of his face, and, and then they placed a crown of thorns on his head. And these weren't thorns like in your rose bush. Uh, these were two to three inch thorns that dug deep into the brow of our Savior. And by this time, he was so exhausted, physically, spiritually, emotionally, there was very little he could do. He wouldn't fight back. It was actually prophesied that he wouldn't even say a word. And so here he is, um, hadn't slept in days, hadn't eaten. He was dehydrated. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was naked, if not naked, nearly naked. And then at this moment, he's told to carry his own cross to his point of execution, now, the cross that he carried was different than the cross that we know today. There's one out in our lobby, and it's a traditional cross. It looks like a lowercase t. That is not what Jesus had. Because what the Romans would do is they would have a pole at the side of the execution, but then there was a cross beam that was carried uh, from, from the point of the, the beating to execution. And that cross beam uh, was, was large. It was over 100 pounds. And so Jesus was forced to pick up this crossbeam and carry it. Now, one of the things you have to understand is the Romans were thrifty, and lumber was not easy to come by. So they, uh, they reused these crossbeams over and over and over as much as they possibly could. And because of that, as Jesus was getting this crossbeam on his shoulders, I have to imagine that his blood was being mixed with the blood that was caked on this cross from dozens of criminals who had been executed before him. The blood of our Savior was mingled with rapists and murderers on this cross. And he lifts it up and he begins to carry it and he can't. So at some point, Simon the Cyrene was told to pick up that cross and carry it. And when they get to Calvary, they finally get up the hill. What they do is they affix the beam, this cross beam, to the pole. And they, they do that and then they affix our Savior to the cross. And they do that by nailing his hands and feet in some of the most sensitive spots you can imagine. The spots of your body that have some of the most, um, the, the, oh, the most tendons and just to maximize exposure and pain, they nail him in the hands and in the feet. And the nails were, depending on tradition, 
four to six inches long that went through his hands and feet. And typically when people were crucified, they died of asphyxiation. They died because they suffocated. Because the way they were fixed to the cross, it limited your ability to be able to breathe well. And so you had to force yourself up on the cross in order to get a deep breath. But what would typically happen is uh, a lot of people who were crucified actually slumped intentionally so that they could hasten death, so they could die quicker. It was a long, arduous process. It would take sometimes two or three days for someone to die on the cross. And here's Jesus, our Savior, that he is in this moment, that he has suffered in incredible ways. In fact, the word excruciating that we use today, sometimes we'll say, oh, I've got this headache, I'm in excruciating pain. What, what the word excruciating means, it literally means from the cross. That's where we get that word. The Romans felt like crucifixions were so barbaric that if a woman was crucified, which was pretty rare, but when a woman was crucified, they wouldn't even crucify her the same way they would a man. They would turn her facing the cross because they couldn't bear to look her in the face because of just the excruciating pain she was in. This is what our Savior endured, and this is what he went through. And you have to ask, why did he have to go through that? Why couldn't God have just waved a wand and said, hey, we're good, right? Why did this matter? And you have to go back, all, all the way back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament law required several kinds of sacrifices, but the two that were really important, there was a guilt offering that required um, people to bring a sacrifice that would be killed uh, to, to atone for their guilt. And this basically was the, the sins that they didn't know about. Uh, there were over 600 laws in the Old Testament, and so there were times that people would break the law and they didn't even realize it. And so there was a guilt offering that would atone for their unknown sins, the times they messed up and didn't even know it really. But then there was another offering called the sin offering. And the sin offering was really important because what it did was it covered our known sins. And so people would bring a sacrifice, and depending on who you were in society, depending on how much money you had, there were five types of sacrifice. We won't get into all that today. But the most common sacrifice for a sin offering was a female goat. And what would happen is that Yom Kippur, this was one of the most holy days in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. The high priest would take two perfect goats and he would lay his hands on one goat and he would confess the sins of the people over this goat and then this goat would be slaughtered. And to make a long story short, what he would do basically is take the blood of that goat and he would sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies. He'd go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the manifest presence of God was. And he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of this goat on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And what this did was it, it paid the price because sin requires a payment. And that payment is blood, according to the law. And so the, the blood of this goat would pay for the sins of the people. This goat was a substitution for the people. And then he would go to the other goat, and he would lay his hands on it, and he would confess the sins of the people over this goat as well. But with this goat, they'd set it free, and this goat would run and go off, and what the people imagined is, is that goat left the presence of the people. It was like God carrying the sins of the people away. And this is what we see. This is what we see happened in Jesus. See, this was foreshadowing to what Jesus would do for us someday. This was foreshadowing to the price he would pay and what he would do for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what Jesus did was he was perfect and blameless and righteous, and what he did is he traded places with us. He became our substitute. We owed a debt of sin that we could never pay. 
And it had to be paid with blood. And Jesus paid that for us. He became sin so that we could become righteousness in Him. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So they were talking about this in Hebrews chapter 9. If you're interested in digging a little deeper in this, you can read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. It talks all in depth about what Jesus did and how he was our substitution in relation to Old Testament law. It's really interesting. But he said, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So this is the law. This is what Jesus had to do to fulfill the law for us. If you look at Scripture, there are over a dozen words that, um, that talk about sin or have a connotation of sin staining our souls. That, that sin isn't just something we do, it's something that marks us. And when I was a kid, we used to sing songs um, like, Oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. Does anybody remember those songs? Or what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? And I used to hear these songs and think, that doesn't even make sense. Right, Because I would skin my knee and, and get blood on my jeans and my mom would kill me because it wasn't coming out, right? So I never understood why this made sense. But what this does in a very real way is the blood that Jesus spills for us, that is shed for us, that pays the price for our sin, it washes us, it, it takes away our guilt, it takes away our shame so that the mark that's on our soul is washed clean. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word. Um, I believe the only version it's used in is the English Standard Version. But the word propitiation is really powerful. And it it means this. Uh, It means that Jesus was the target of God's wrath. What it means is we, we were the target of God's wrath because of our sins. But because of what Jesus did, he became the target of God's wrath for us. He said, God, I know their sin has made them an enemy to to you, in, in rebellion to you, but I will take on their punishment. The wrath that you intend for them, I will take on myself. This is what Jesus has done. That which we deserved, Jesus took on. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love this because my wife and I, uh, we were good friends uh, before we started dating. Um, we knew each other well, and the great thing about that is like, we didn't have the weird first date because um, a lot of first dates I would go on, and I didn't have very many, but a lot of the first dates I went on, you know you know how that, this goes. It might have been a while back, but what would you do? Well, you'd get showered, you'd get a haircut, you'd get dressed up, you'd wear a nice shirt, you'd, right? you'd clean out your car. You wanted to make a good first impression because you, you want this person to like you, right? So you're doing everything in your power to make sure that person likes you. And then 17 years later, you're in sweatpants and a you know, T-shirt and order takeout every night. That's okay, right? Um, but sometimes we approach God like it's a first date. And we go, okay, well, if, if God's going to love me, I've got to make him love me. I mean, I've got to clean up the areas of my life. I've got to get dressed up. I've got to make sure I look right. I mean, I can't let him see anything that's wrong with me. But that's the great thing about being married for 17 years. I still want my wife to be impressed with me. I still want to... 
I still want to do well for her, but I don't have to impress her. She, she loves me the way I am. because She's been around me long enough to know the way I am. And this is how God loves us, and we don't even realize it. That he loves us at our worst, not, not just at our best. See, what this passage tells us is that on your worst day, Jesus loved you enough to die for you. On the day that you blew it in the biggest ways, on the days that, that you were the most sinful, think about your worst day, and Jesus loved you enough that day to die for you. We don't have to get ourselves cleaned up. Do you know, do you know what happens? We come into relationship with Christ, and he loves us enough to clean us up. We, we don't have to do the work. He does the work. And, and I love this because what it's saying is you don't have to work for your Christianity. You don't have to clean yourself up for a first date. Jesus loves you just the way you are. He died for you. The price that he paid on the cross, he was willing to pay that price for you on your worst day. Not just on your best day. When you feel like everything is clicking and everything's right. No, he's not impressed by that. See, what makes a great comeback? We said earlier, the deficit has to be big, right? And it doesn't get to be any bigger deficit than what Jesus had. Jesus was dead. Uh, there are theories that Jesus was in some sort of catatonic trance or that he was just in a coma, he didn't really die. And so people, naysayers, will say, oh no, he wasn't really dead. Um, but if you look at Scripture, um, when Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and said, hey, I want the body of Jesus so I can bury him in this tomb, uh, Pilate was surprised that he had died so quickly because it takes a while for people to die of crucifixion. And so he was surprised, so he verified with the soldiers on the scene that Jesus had actually died. And sure enough, he was dead. So he released the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was dead. The gulf or the gap, but the deficit between life and death is huge. And then on top of that, you've got the, the gap or the deficit between the man who had taken on sin, the sin of the world, the sin of every man, woman, and child who had ever lived before him and would ever live after him. He took the weight of that sin and he, he, he carried it on himself. Now, take that sin and the gap or the deficit between that sin and a righteous, holy God is a gap bigger than we can imagine. It's a deficit beyond what we can imagine. It is a huge gap. It's a huge deficit. The odds were totally improbable. Can you imagine if you're one of the disciples on Saturday? On Saturday night, sitting in the house, I imagine it was total silence. Nobody talking. Nobody saying a word. I can imagine muffled cries throughout the house as people were wondering what was going to happen now. Every dream that they had, every hope and aspiration that they had was dashed and gone because the person they followed, their rabbi, was crucified and killed. Can you imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus? The disappointment, the pain. This little boy that she had raised to see him tortured and beaten, murdered. I think it's safe to say this was a hopeless situation for them. They felt like there was no hope. They felt like, how could, how could, things, how could things get any worse? I mean, we are at rock bottom. I have to imagine this is where they were. Thankfully, we are looking at this story through the lens of the cross. We know how the story turns out. 
And we know that Saturday night, they must have been totally hopeless, but then Sunday came. It restored hope, restored joy, restored peace. See, the odds were totally against them. And the stakes couldn't have been bigger. You think a Super Bowl or a World Series is big? The, the, the state of every man, woman, and child's soul that would ever live rested in the balance of this moment. The stakes don't get any bigger than they were at this time. And Jesus orchestrated the biggest comeback in the history of the world. When he walked out of the grave on that Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, what he did is he declared victory over hell, death, and the grave. Um, there's a passage in Luke chapter 24. Several women were going to the tomb of Jesus and they get there and the stone is rolled away and uh, they're shocked because they encounter these angels and the angel says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And I love this because he's saying, you're in a graveyard, but you're looking for somebody who's alive. He's not here anymore. Oh, he was here, but he was just a temporary resident. And he's not here anymore. He is alive and well. And that makes all the difference. Why, why does it make all the difference? Number one, it makes all the difference because he declared in that moment that he was victorious over death in the grave, hell, death in the grave, in that moment. And what that means for us is simple because most of us, we think about death and you might not worry about death, but I think we all think of death as the worst case scenario. And what Jesus did in that moment was he conquered our worst case scenario. He conquered death in one moment when he walked out of that grave. It was done. See, what he's saying to us today is no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're going through, I can take care of it. If I can conquer death, you don't think I can help you restore your marriage? If I can conquer death, you don't think I can help you find a job? If I can conquer death, do you think there's a situation I can't take care of? And that's what he's declaring to us today. There's nothing too big in your life. And the second thing that I love that I think is so important is that he is enthroned at the right hand of God today. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says that Jesus is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. What this means to us is that Jesus is inter interceding on our behalf to God. That he is petitioning God for us. So if you're here today and you feel like you're alone and no one cares and no one sees you and no one knows you, you have to know that because Jesus is alive and well today, he is at the right hand of God the Father making a petition on your behalf. He's praying for you right now. You're not alone. You're not battling in this alone. He is with you whether you realize it or not. And this is the thing I want you to take home. I want you to understand. I want you to get this in your spirit today. Um, scripture, we see over and over and over in Scripture where we are one with Christ. And if this is true that we are one with Christ, then we have to understand we are one with his, with his suffering, with his death, and with his resurrection. And so when Jesus orchestrates the greatest comeback in all time, we are one in that greatest comeback. And this is what it says in Romans 8, 11. It says, if the Spirit, and this word Spirit doesn't mean some random, vague Spirit. It means the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So understand this. The Holy Spirit that helped orchestrate the greatest comeback of all time in Jesus Christ dwells in 
the heart of believers. And so if we will simply submit ourselves to that and understand that the same spirit that orchestrated the greatest comeback of all time can orchestrate a comeback in me, it's a game changer. It can change everything. Because then, uh, then you don't have those Saturday moments where you, everything feels hopeless. When you understand that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. You don't have to have a Saturday night moment where you feel like everything is gone and everything is hopeless because it's never hopeless. Because you have the, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead in you. This is what it says in the message version. It says this, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. And what this means is when you need a comeback in your spiritual life, God can orchestrate that. When you need a comeback in your relationships, maybe in your marriage, God can orchestrate that. When you have need in your life that you feel like is hopeless, guess what? God can orchestrate a comeback because the same spirit that worked a comeback in Jesus can work that in you as well. And that's reason to celebrate today. I'm thankful that God worked in this way in Jesus. I don't always understand it. I don't always get it, but I do know this. Jesus saw you just as you are and said, you are worth dying for. And then not only did he die for you, he came back to illustrate his power over death, hell, and the grave, to illustrate the power that he has to conquer all situations. And I'm telling you today, that same spirit lives in you. There's never a hopeless situation when we're in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you so much. I'm so grateful that you're among us today. I'm grateful that you sent your son to die on the cross, and not just to die, but to be raised again on the third day, to conquer death, hell, and the grave. And so today we honor you and thank you for that sacrifice. We're asking you to move in us today, minister in us today, shift us, change us, and move us today. Help us see that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us today as believers and as followers of Christ. And let us see the implications for that, what that means for our lives and the lives of the people around us. And with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Mel, you know what, I'm not really following Jesus. I'm not really in a relationship with him, but I know I need to be. Today, I want to make him Lord of my life. I'm not going to make you come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray with you where you're at. But what greater day to get right with God than on an Easter Sunday. So if you're here today and that's you, I'm not going to make you come forward, but would you be bold enough just to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? I'll acknowledge it and you can put your hand right back down. Is there anybody who says, that's me? Pray for me, Mel. Thank you. Up in the balcony, I see you. Praise God. Who else? Say, Mel, pray for me. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. All right. I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, just to say a really simple prayer with me. Just repeat this out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for paying the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I confess you as Lord and Savior of my life. Use my life for your glory and help me live a life that points people to you. Thank you for loving me. 
Thank you for choosing me. Today I choose you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause this morning. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, I just want to ask you to take a step for us. There's a card in the seat back in front of you that looks like this one. It says, need prayer on one side. On the other side, it says salvation. Fill out the side that says salvation and drop it in one of our offering boxes before you leave today. Let us know about your decision to follow Christ. We want to help you take the next step. If you're watching online or maybe you're in the room and you'd rather not fill out this card, um, I want to encourage you. You can simply take out your mobile device, your cell phone, and text the word salvation to the number 555-888. Let us know about your decision. Let us help you take the next step in your faith journey so you can grow in your faith and really become a disciple of Christ. We want to help you in your journey. So again, thank you for making that choice today. Here's what's going to happen right now. Our worship team is going to lead us in a final song. But while they're doing that, I told you earlier that a great comeback is memorable. And one of the things Jesus asked his disciples to do was take, receive communion together and thereby remembering the sacrifice he made. So we're going to be doing that during this final song. If you're a guest with us today, I just want to point something out. There's the cup there, but there's two cups that are stacked inside of each other. The bottom cup holds the, the cracker and the top cup holds the juice. Take both of those cups out as the, the elements are coming by. In just a moment, Pastor Dick was going to come up and he's going to walk us through those elements together and receiving the communion. And then when we finish singing and worshiping together, uh, Steph McCoy is our missions director. She's going to come and dismiss us and then we'll be out of here. So why don't you stand your feet all over the room? We're going to worship together before we go. But guys, I want you to know I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. And I love you more than you know. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.